so today uh, I want to talk about worship. Now, I want to come from a slightly different angle. Um, firstly, I'm not up there, I'm down here, so that's one angle. Um, but I want to present a fairly simple idea that we th see through Scripture. Um, but I'm also help hoping that it will help you unlock some of the, the heart of worship and why we do this thing uh, called worship. We're going to look at some scripture, some examples. So it, my sermon's not meant to be groundbreaking or earth-shattering. It's meant to be simple. But I hope you get that ah moment or that aha moment maybe, you know, if, to, to say, well, this is, this is why we do. We, this is why we spend so much time um, in worship and talking about worship. Um, so that's my goal today. But when I mention the word worship, um, what springs to your mind? Now, that's, that's not a rhetorical question. Um, give me a couple of words that might spring to your mind when you think about the word worship. Music, singing? Raised hands. Crying. Instruments. Submission, honour. Bowing down, Proskuneto, yep. Connection. Sacrifice. He's read my sermon. Okay, now you're not meant to look at that. Has anyone ever thought of goat? Anyway, worship started with a goat. That's the title of my sermon, okay? Here we go, yeah. So we have all these expressions of worship that, that we were talking about here. In 2017, worship expressions primarily look like, looks like singing. Um, worship, we have dancing, the creative arts, uh, we have communion, um, all sorts of things. These are uh, modern expressions of worship. Um, but when we look at scripture, particularly early on, they had some different ideas about different expressions, I guess, of what worship looked like, particularly uh, in Genesis and the Old Testament. And so worship looks very different then as to how it looks today. So quite simply, worship started with a goat, all right? It started with sacrifice, and then it progressed, and it moved to the temple, with the temple sacrificed. And then a few hundred years later, David came along and had a revelation and started singing songs. Then we move up and we see in the New Testament, uh, talks about singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. Moving up again through to the Dark Ages, you know, we've got all these uh, amazing churches that were built as expressions to glorify God, you know, through the architecture and the artistry. Um, and places where people come and commune and um, do all the arty sort of stuff that they did in the, the Dark Ages. Um, so there's lots of expressions of worship. Communion then came that. Then there's uh, liturgy, poetry, writings, all that sort of is expressions uh, of worship. Now, if you've also been around in the church for the past 40, 50 years or so, you'll also have noticed that the expressions of worship have changed as well. Um, who remembers singing Kumbaya? 
Who remembers singing both versions of Kumbaya? <laughs> not, not too many people. Anyway, so then we progressed into the Shine Jesus Shine era. Okay, scripture and song. All right. And now we've, then in the 80s, you know, we had Vineyard and Hillsong's expressions of worship. And now we're getting, getting a lot through Bethel and still Hillsong, Vineyard and um, many others. So, you know, there, there was also the expression where the church I first went to used to have an altar rail. Okay, and you would come and kneel at the altar rail and take communion. And that would be an expression of worship. So many expressions of worship have changed um, since the goat. But let's take a look, a quick look at the goat. Now, well, we're going to start with the story of Cain and Abel. Now, we understand that the Bible gives us a picture um, when we read stories in the Bible, it gives us a picture of what God is like. And so there are stories in Scripture that reveal to us the character and the heart of God. But there's also stories in Scripture that show us what God is not like. Okay? Make sense? So the understanding is meant to be that this is, sometimes you see this is a picture of what God is like, and this is a picture of what God is not like. And then some stories, there's actually both, okay, intermixed, and that makes it really confusing. Now, keep that in mind as we look into the story of uh, Cain and Abel. Now, this is not a, a story normally associated in the framework of a worship sermon, okay? But I think it's one of those stories that shows us what worship should be like and what worship should not be like. So let's, let's read this. In Genesis 4, In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious and he looked despondent. Okay, so we have here one of the first pictures um, of worship in the Bible. Now, a few things just to frame this context here. The actual word worship is not used here, okay? In fact, it's not used until we get to Abraham a few hundred years later, but we'll get to that next. But just keep, just keep that in mind. And up until this point from Adam, creation, to Cain and Abel, there has been no rules given uh, or instructions about how to worship. Also, there is nothing to denote that God told them how to worship, okay, or required worship up until this point. Okay, so those three things. No rules, the word worship was not used, and God does not require worship. In fact, it wasn't until we get to the law that there was instruction given uh, on worship. Now, that's a key point when it comes to understanding the motivations, the heart motivations of Cain and Abel. 
Now, the other thing is it's also hard to get a complete picture of the story here. These early scriptures in Genesis are a little bit like, I describe them, I guess, best as like postcards. Okay? They're written on a postcard. Um, and it's to convey a few little short meanings. All right? And it's hard to extract complex details um, when we only have a few sentences of what's going on. So in saying that, um, I'm just letting you know, I'm going to read a little bit into the text. Okay? Um, I'm not changing the story. So don't call me a heretic yet, but just adding a little bit. And I hope, you know, I get it right and you can tell me if I'm wrong later. So it says, in the course of time, Cain offered some of the produce of the ground. So Cain presents his offering, but he takes his time about getting around to it. This indicated that he'd already harvested and eaten the first fruit. He simply took his time before even considering to make an offering. And this actually says a lot about his attitude uh, to making the offering. It shows his lack of enthusiasm or his indifference in the act of the offering. And then Abel presents an offering uh, of the firstborn of the animal. And... God then says, well, he, he didn't really like Cain's offering. Now, we might look at this on a surface level and think, well, God likes animals to be sacrificed but not fruit of the ground. No, that's not, that's, not his, that's not what's going on here. I think Cain's offering was a bit more like this. So firstly, Cain, we saw, did not offer the first fruit. Abel offered the first fruit or the firstborn goat or whatever animal it was. And, but what's so important, I guess, about the first fruit, as the, the term we use? What's the significance here? Now, I don't know who here, as a kid, maybe has grown fruit trees, um, but we've recently gone through with our kids uh, growing chickens, all right, well, raising chickens. Um, so we got our first chickens, day-old chickens, and um, it took ages and ages before the first egg came, okay? Uh, we had a process of going through. We had a couple chickens die that we had to replace, and we had to build the chicken coop. But we were told it was going to take about 10 weeks before the first egg appeared, but it was more like 16 weeks, okay? So the kids would go out every morning, where's that egg, where's that egg? No, no egg today, okay? But finally, that first egg came, all right? So the kids didn't just run up and cook it and eat it, all right? They came up, they showed their brothers and their sisters, look, we finally got an egg, okay? Then they come and wake us up. Dad, Mum, we finally got an egg. Okay? And then I think we even waited until Wendy was around, you know, so we could show their grandmother, look, our first egg. Isn't it amazing? It's an egg. I was pretty excited about an egg. It's an egg. It's an egg. But we made sure everyone got to see it. And then we cooked it up and we cut it into six slices and... You know, and we shared that meal. 
we shared that first fruit, okay? It wasn't about the egg. I think we even posted it on Facebook. <laughs> we experienced, we had an experience as a family, okay? It wasn't the egg we were celebrating, okay? It was the experience and the family connection, the relationship that we shared. You get the picture? Okay, the first fruit is a celebration. It was a moment of sharing. Abel's first fruit offering was not about the goat. Okay, he was sharing his first animal meal with God. It says in some versions he shared the fat portions, which is considered the best part of the animal. It was a picture of relationship. Abel sacrificed by sharing the best part with the Lord. Symbolically or literally, he ate a meal and shared it with God. Cain's offering was not the first fruit. Remember it said in the course of time, he got around to it. He didn't share the experience with the Lord or potentially with anyone else. In fact, he most likely ate the first fruit. And that shows a picture of his heart. Cain's offering, it seems, was possibly done out of a sense of duty. The story of Cain does not show any direct connection with the Lord like it showed with Abel. He made his offering, I think, out of a sense of duty. And this is why his offering was not accepted by God, because it was out of a sense of duty, not out of a sense of connection and relationship with God. Whereas Abel and God shared the experience of the first fruit and related over a meal. So this story early on in scripture shows the heart that we are built for relationship with God. It's not a picture of duty-bound worship. God had not given any instructions for worship but was looking for relationship and enjoyed sharing a meal with Abel. Moving on. Worship. B-grade movies. Who likes B-grade old movies? <laughs> oh, no. I might get caught out here. But I, I don't watch many, to be honest, I must confess. But, um, you know, those old sorts of movies, like, I just grab one off the internet, The Lost World, Godzilla versus um, King Kong. And, you know, maybe this is my warped picture, but I'm using it just so you can get a picture. Um, they have this scene in these types of movies where there's this native tribe and there's a big volcano and... They capture the maiden, the young maiden, and they, the tribe carries them off up to the altar on top of the volcano to basically throw the maiden in to the volcano god uh, and make a sacrifice of appeasement. And then the hero comes in, you know, steals the maiden, you know, and they, they, they leave the island on a boat into the sunset and the volcano god doesn't get his... Um, appeased offering, so the volcano explodes and kills the tribe, okay? 
great movies, you know. Um, so in ancient times, in the times of Abraham, we've fast-forwarded past the flood about 1,500 years uh, from Cain. There are civilizations spread throughout the world that have acts of sacrifice that are a little bit like these B-grade movies. Um, they're sacrificing to their puny gods. Okay, I'll just call them puny gods. Just so you know, they're idols, they're demons, whatever you want to call them, but I'm just going to call them puny gods for now. So these tribes, Abraham are around the time of Abraham, and they had these horrible acts uh, of sacrifice and even where child sacrifice was known to happen. And this picture of the B-grade movie is disturbingly close to the themes of what was going on there. And also, it is disturbingly close to the picture we see of the story of Abraham and Isaac, where our God, or Yahweh, is supposedly acting very much like the volcano gods or the puny gods wanting a sacrifice. Now, before I explain this, uh, I want you to say, yes, there are other major themes going on about God testing Abraham and Isaac being a picture of Jesus. But just put those to one side. I'm not sort of getting into that today. I want to come from the different angle of what God is actually showing to Abraham. So let's look at the story. Take your son, he said, your only son, whom you love. Go out to the land of Moria and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, I tell you. So God tells Abraham, go sacrifice, Abraham, uh, go sacrifice Isaac. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship and then we'll come back to you. So this is the first time in the Bible that the word worship is used. Now God didn't say worship. Abraham connected what was going on with worship. So Abraham had just connected God telling him to sacrifice and understood that to mean worship. This is pretty significant because Abraham knows what the other tribes are doing and what they're getting involved in, sacrificing to their puny gods. And it's like he makes this same connection about Yahweh. But when God says to him, you know, he's got the knife, don't lay a hand on him, God is actually teaching him that he is not a God that needs human sacrifice. He reveals to Abraham something about his true character. And the test that Abraham passed, he, he subsequently learns about the nature of God. God is not like those other puny gods requiring appeasement. God reveals to Abraham and shows him that he is not like the other puny gods. He is not a God that requires appeasement. Yahweh does not need to be appeased by sacrifice. Abraham learnt that appeasement is not an act of worship. Translate that to, for us, if we have to do something that we feel appeases God, 
to come to God, that's not, that's not worship. That's not worship. And what happens next in the story? God then goes on to provide a ram, which they sacrifice, and they have a meal together, just like Abel did with God. Psalm 40. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears have been open. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Psalm 51. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it to you. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. So we see later in the Psalms that God wasn't focused on the offering. It wasn't about the sacrifice. It wasn't about the goat. It was about connection with man. What they were doing was just expressions of worship. Worship is a picture of relationship and connecting with the Father. And that's what Abel did. Abraham and Isaac also did. And these guys, their expression of worship was sharing a meal together with God. David's expression was song, but they all had that underlying intention below the expression, connecting and relationship with God. In whatever worship expression you have, the foundation is connecting and relating with God. Moving ahead 500 years into the future, God then gives the law to Moses. And the very first thing he says in Exodus 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land, the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. He tells them to worship no other puny gods and to worship him only. So this is the first instruction we see that God gives them. So... If worship is an expression of connection or relationship, why then a few hundred years later, you know, they've gone um, 3,000 years since Adam um, to Exodus 20, why does God set up the temple sacrifice system? It seems almost like a contradiction, okay? He doesn't desire sacrifice, we see with David and the Psalms, but he sets up the law and the entire system based around the temple sacrifice. So what's going on here? Now, I don't have all the answers, but, and I know there's, uh, there's all those pictures of atonement um, that are going around the sacrifice, but at its most basic level, it was still a meal shared with God, either through the priest or with the people. Under the law, sacrifice just became a covenant meal at its most basic level. They gave the best part of, the, part of the animal to God and they ate a meal, just like Abel did 3,000 years earlier. We then move on to uh, Deuteronomy 14. The next one, please, Leah. So God says in Deuteronomy 14, I'll just paraphrase some of it, take 10% of whatever you grow and have a party. If it's too far to carry your tithe, sell it for silver. Then travel back to the city where you meet everyone. Then use the silver to buy whatever you like. 
cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. God is basically telling them to have a big family gathering once a year and have this meal in my presence. Even under the law, God's heart, the picture of worship, was relationship in God's presence. Now, the context here in Exodus 20 is it says God rescued them from the land of slavery. So Israel had been enslaved for 400 years, and when they come out of Egypt, they're pretty much a mess. Okay, They complain, they whinge, they want to go back to Egypt. Um, they want meat, then they want bread, and the gold they took from Egypt, they made into an idol of the golden calf, uh, and they simply don't really have that relationship or understand um, Yahweh like Moses does. These were a people, after being in slavery for 400 years, had lost their sense of identity. So the law was created to bring back that sense of identity and stability into their culture. That's what the law was for. We see that in Galatians. We could keep that there, couldn't I? Before the coming of this faith, or Jesus and the new covenant, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith was to come, until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So some versions actually use the word tutor. Okay, so the picture is a, a tutor or a guardian actually lives in your house when you're a kid. And they raise you up, teaching you how to become an adult. Okay, and when you've learned to become an adult uh, and act like a proper member of society, there's no longer a need for a guardian in your house to raise you. Um, so this is how, this is the picture that Galatians explaining was the need for the law. So God gave them the law as children, in, in metaphor, as, as a children, a group of children, to protect them, to stabilise them in their relationship with him. And God created the law around the temple system, which at its most basic form was a meal in God's presence. Now just remember, I'm not trying to take away any of the pictures of atonement um, or anything, I'm just trying to see this in the relationship of worship and relate in the context of worship through relationship. So from Adam to Moses, they lived 3,000 years without any instruction, okay? They were now slaves just freed from Egypt and they needed this, these instructions in order for the culture to stabilise and grow and flourish so they could restore that relationship with God. That's why the Lord gave them the instructions about sacrifice and to worship him. The law was actually good for them to steer them. And God used the nature of the meal as the picture of worship that he used with Abel for 1,400 years under the law. It was a picture of God still seeking relationship with man. So, worship at its core is about relationship with the Father. 
We saw this before with David. Um, that's right. My ears have been open, he says. That's a very strange saying. I think it's very similar to my eyes have been open. Okay. You did not desire sacrifice. Ah, it was a bit of an epiphany for David, I think. Romans 12 goes on to explain it. I'm going to read this from the message. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, your eating. Your sleeping. That's an act of worship. Did you know that? That's a good thing. <laughs> I never realized that. Going to work. Ooh. Walking around life and place it before God as an offering. It's all about connection with God. And if that means for you, dancing, singing, communion, reading scripture, writing poetry, having a meal with friends in his presence, whatever, it's all just as valid. Now, you might then ask, well, why then do we sing? If worship is everywhere, well, it is everywhere. Why then do we sing? Well, the reason I think is, is it's something that we can all do together. That's the first reason. You see, when we worship as a community or as the family of God, he is eager to meet with us simply because we are his kids. And when his kids come together to thank him and to bless him, Pardon me. He loves that, just as any parent loves to see their kids. You know, I love my kids, and I love watching their movies. I love playing their games. I love reading their books. I love them jumping on me in the morning, coming into me at the middle of the night, and I love them talking to me all the time about things I don't understand. Whatever it looks like, I think that's the picture of worship we have with our Father. He loves hanging out with us, whatever the expression is, because it's an experience of, with him. Without my kids, I, I would never watch those TV shows. I would never play those games. It's not about the games. It's not about the TV shows. It's about the expression and the connection that's created with my kids. That's what, the love, that's what the Lord wants. And that's what David, I think, understood. The Vineyard created a series of music CDs which started in about the early 80s, which was called Touching the Father's Heart, simply because that was the goal, to touch the Father's heart and be a blessing to him. Songs are our main expression as a community, and that is the reason... We want to touch the Father's heart. We want to say thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. And as his kids, he gets blessed when we come together and do that. Because God is like the ultimate party crasher. He's always ready to show up to a party. All right? He wants to come out and hang out with his kids wherever they are. And that's the heart of worship. At its core... It's connecting with the Father. And you can add whatever expression you like over that. Let it be your everyday walking and talking and sleeping. Don't limit yourself to one expression of worship. 
But whatever you do, know that God is wanting to meet you in that place. So on Sunday mornings, when we generally start worship, um, we say something like, come Holy Spirit. And that's meant to be like turning the lights on. Okay? The darkness is gone when you turn the light on. You see the Holy Spirit and you engage. That's what it should be like. Okay? Now, my friend Trent, when he leads, he says the same thing, except he uses different words. Okay? He says something like, Show me where you are, Holy Spirit. Show me where you are, Jesus, in the room. It's pretty close. So what it's trying to do, it's trying to activate our spiritual senses. Ephesians 1 says, open the eyes of my heart. This means we are trying to connect our spirits to see the Holy Spirit. Now, some people get caught up on this a little bit and they say, well, the Holy Spirit is here all the time. Why do we have to ask him to come? Now, I won't get into the theological side of that, but I'll give you some illustrations. Um, so let's just pretend that Nicole is the Holy Spirit, all right? So I've walked into church and I've seen Nicole over there. I know she's here. Holy Spirit is here. Holy Spirit Nicole is here. Fantastic. Awesome. Uh, now I can start to worship. Yes, I love you, Holy Spirit and Nicole. Yes, you're amazing, Holy Spirit Nicole. Yes, you are amazing. Okay, that's a one-sided picture of the Holy Spirit. She's in the room, but I haven't engaged with the Holy Spirit yet. Okay? Just knowing that Holy Spirit Nicole is here is one thing. But if I go over to Nicole and say, hello, hello, Holy Spirit Nicole. <laughs> it's great to see you. It's great that you're here. We welcome that you're here. And she says, I've been waiting for you. Okay. That's what the Holy Spirit's, the Holy Spirit's waiting for us. Okay, to engage. That engagement takes us to another level that it's just great that you're in the room somewhere, Holy Spirit. Okay, it's a different level of engagement. We enter into that place of connection and it grows in our relationship. Now let's look at um, John 4. Sorry, Dan. We'll look at John 4 and uh, we'll flesh this out a little bit. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, yet you Jews uh, say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and it's now here, when the true worshippers will worship the Father 
in spirit and truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Thanks, Craig. Okay, so the woman here is asking Jesus a question. Okay, it's about the location of worship. Where should we worship? The Samaritans say the mountain, but the Jews say the temple. So which is it, Jesus? And Jesus says the answer, worship in spirit and truth. Hmm, does that give a location? Well, it sort of does and sort of doesn't. Now, I've recently read a slightly different take on this, and it talks about the word uh, that it uses for truth here, aletheia in the Greek, um, which is the word for truth. And aletheia also translates to words like reveal, reality, or realm. So potentially it could read like this, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in the spirit realm. So in fact, Jesus is giving a location of where worship happens in the spirit realm, which is basically all around us. It no longer happens in the mountain or the temple, but in the spirit realm, because God is spirit. It's all around us. So what does that mean to us? We have access into the spirit realm. Hebrews says, come boldly into the throne room. But into order, in order to do that, we need to take this step of asking the Holy Spirit to be our guide and show us the spirit realm or the throne room. What is Jesus doing in the room right now? What's going on? And once we engage the eyes of our heart, we can engage with the Holy Spirit and let this connection of relationship happen. Now, I hope this makes sense because this is probably something you need to work out for yourself a little bit, okay? You have been given permission through the blood of Christ to enter into the throne room or the spirit realm, whatever you want to call it, okay? See the Holy Spirit. Ask the Holy Spirit to show himself to you. Engage with the Holy Spirit. You have permission to enter into that place. Nothing holds you back. There's no appeasement required. There's no sense of duty. Nothing holds you back. And this is the challenge we face every time I stand up and lead worship as well. Anyway, worship starts with me opening the eyes of my heart, my spiritual eyes, and looking for the Holy Spirit to engage with. I want to open the eyes of my heart and step into the spirit realm and relate with God. We have access to this room as sons and daughters. From God's side, he's eager to meet with us all the time. He is the father and we are his kids. It's a simple picture. And we start by opening the eyes of our heart. In other words, worship starts with seeing God. John 20, 29. Because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen me, yet have believed. It's the conversation with Thomas. Matt Redman has this worship song and it starts, Worship starts with seeing you. Our hearts respond to your revelation. The Holy Spirit is always there, waiting for us to engage. And it simply starts with stepping up and opening the eyes of our heart and hanging out with the Father. Would you stand with me?
So we've covered a lot of ground this morning, and I hope uh, that helps you better understand the heart of worship a little better. The expressions of worship are not the heart, but they lead to the heart. You can have expressions anywhere, meeting with family and friends. Today's um, baby dedication, that was a great expression of worship. In the presence of God, we dedicate Ethan. It's a great expression of worship. You know, I want to invite you, um, if you want the eyes of your heart to be enlightened, that we're going to pray for you. So let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Let us go deeper, more than just seeing you. Worship starts with seeing you and continues with engagement. So come, show us, Holy Spirit. We thank you that we have permission to step, step into the spirit realm that's all around us and connect with you. Jesus, we thank you for the, for the connection that you are our Father in heaven and you are here by your Spirit because you are Spirit. Take us deeper into that place of understanding that we have access anytime, any place to relate to you. Thank you, Lord.